According to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, is melted within my chest. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A couple of evildoers, they, they encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord, to the coming of the Lord, to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. It's finished. <laughs> I've got you
When my daughter Becky was little, she was a Little Mermaid fanatic. I have this memory burned in my brain. Becky's standing in front of the TV. Ariel, the Little Mermaid, has lost her voice to the sea witch in an effort to make herself human. She's about to be imprisoned in the depths of the sea. All hell is breaking loose, but she gets her voice back and starts singing. At that point, I remember Becky standing in front of the TV yelling. Keep singing, Ariel, keep singing. How do you sing about heaven when you feel like hell? Sometimes that seems to be a rather pertinent question for me. You know, King David seemed to think that he had spent some time in hell. Read Psalm 16, 18, 86, 139. Read it in the King James and you'll see what I mean. In Psalm 6, from the Hebrew, he writes, In death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, that is hell, who will give you praise? Good question. In Psalm 22, he seems to think that he's in hell. I, I wonder where that was. You know, at one point, David loved well, but lost everything and hid in a cave, buried by betrayal and rejection. It was like he did everything right, but suffered as if he had done everything wrong. He must have felt forsaken by family, friends, God himself. Maybe it was then. Later, he used his power to commit adultery and murder the woman's husband. He was the political and spiritual king of Israel and yet a slave to his own desires. Maybe it was then. Toward the end of his life, he found himself abandoned by his own son who murdered his other son, stole his throne, and raped his wives. Now that is a dysfunctional family, and we all know a little bit about that. I wonder where David was when he wrote Psalm 22. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you know that the Psalms are songs? The Psalms formed the songbook of ancient Israel and David must have sung some of them in hell. How do you sing about heaven when you feel like hell? Do you believe in hell? No, of course you don't. You may believe that there is a hell, but no one believes in hell. That's what makes it hell. Not believing is hell. Believing is faith, and faith means trust. To trust no one is to be utterly, entirely alone. That's hell. No one believes in hell, except, of course, for one man. He is the song in hell, and I'm not talking about David. And when I say hell, of course, I'm talking about hell number one. In scripture, there are at least three different realities that we often refer to with the one English word, hell. The Bible uses the Hebrew word sheol and the Greek word Hades uh, to describe hell number one. It's outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. It's pictured as being in the abyss of the sea, the depths of the earth. It's in this world. It begins on the surface of the earth and continues after the body dies. It's the grave, the realm of the dead and the demonic. And in Sheol, 
control, no, no one sings. All feel forsaken. Hell number two is not the same as that, but just the opposite of that. It's not the experience of God's absence, but the manifestation of God's presence. And who is God? Well, scripture tells us that our God is a consuming fire. He's not part fire and part love. He's all love and all consuming fire. Sodom was destroyed with that fire, and the disciples were filled with that same fire on Pentecost. And check this out. Hell number one cannot be the same as hell number two. For in Revelation 20, hell number one is thrown into hell number two, Hades is thrown into the lake of fire, and death shall be no more. The Bible never calls the lake of fire hell, but we think of it as hell, and that's too bad, for I think a better name for it might be heaven, or at least the substance of heaven, which destroys the work of the devil. In other words, divinity, theon in Greek, translated brimstone or divinity. It, it's light that destroys the dark. It's life that is the very death of death. It's truth that destroys the lies. It's logos that consumes chaos. It's faithfulness that consumes faithlessness. Hope that destroys hopelessness. Love that fills all things. In heaven, no one feels forsaken. Everyone sings. And oh yeah, by the way, it's eternal. Eternal fire devours temporal hell. There's one last word or idea that gets translated as hell. That's Gehenna. It's a place, and I've been there. Ironically, they were having a barbecue, but there were no cries of pain and agony, just folks playing volleyball and eating chicken. Gehenna is the valley just to the south and the west of Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, it was a picture of judgment, a place where corruption and death were consumed by fire. Hell number three is the judgment of God. It's the place where light, life, love consume darkness, death, and isolation. It's the burning boundary between time and eternity, between this fallen creation and the new creation, between the old man-made Jerusalem and the eternal Jerusalem. Did you know that Ariel is a biblical name for Jerusalem, and God's people are referred to as Jerusalem. Well, 2,000 years ago, Ariel had completely lost her voice, and the word of God, judgment of God, Jesus the Christ hung nailed to a tree just outside her city walls, where he bore the sin of the world, destroyed the work of the devil, and cried, it is finished. So Ariel, how do you sing about heaven when you feel like hell, ask Jesus. 
there on the cross, he bore our griefs, carried our iniquities. He entered my hell and your hell. Uh, according to scripture, he descended into the lower parts of the earth, Ephesians 4, 9, where he preached to the spirits in prison, 1 Peter 3, 19. He preached to the dead, 1 Peter 4, 6. Or maybe he sang to them. In Jesus' day, there were no numbers on the Psalms. So to reference a Psalm or a song, you'd quote the first verse. On the cross, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was Psalm 22. We know that Jesus started to sing it on the cross. I think he must have kept singing it in hell. And this is how it goes. Verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. It, you know, he felt forsaken, but he's saying that he was not forsaken. Listen, verse 24. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but is heard when he cried to him. From you comes my song of Hallel, my hallelujah. Now the end of the song. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. All who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. It is finished. See, I think Jesus descended into hell singing and finished the song on the cross. Then he bowed his head, delivered up his spirit, his breath, his voice, that is the spirit that descends on Ariel upon Jerusalem as tongues of fire on Pentecost. It's the spirit that descended on David as he composed his songs in darkness. It's the spirit that causes you to call out to God saying, Abba, Father. It's the hallelujah. At the end of time, hell is cast into heaven and death is no more. At the cross, Heaven is cast into hell, and the king of heaven won't stop singing. Whatever will not move to the resonant frequencies of heaven is shattered by the sound of praise. And so the Israelites sang, and the walls came tumbling down. Paul and Silas sang in prison, and the earth shook, and the doors flew open. Jonah sang to God in the belly of the beast in the depths of the sea. And, and by the way, the Bible calls that Sheol. He sang and the beast could not stomach the song. Jesus sang hallelujah in hell and shattered the gates of hell from the inside out. The song breaks the power of hell and each of us will get to see it happen. It's at the edge of hell where Christ is crucified where sin is consumed by the grace of God, the edge of hell and heaven, it's there that we meet the singer and learn his song. Music is based on a seven chord scale, like the seven days of creation. In a major chord, we hear perfect harmony, but in a minor chord, one note is one half step off. The minor chord makes us long for the major chord, for harmony, for completion. 
The fall on, on the sixth day makes us long for the completion of the seventh day. Well, at the minor fall, David didn't stop singing because Jesus didn't stop singing in David. David played the chord. He surrendered the discord. He surrendered his pain, shame, sin, and sorrow. And Jesus gave him the words. David sang, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus met him there and finished the song, singing discord into harmony, turning sin into grace and forsakenness into faith. David couldn't write that song or finish that song, but the song finished David, a baffled king composing hallelujah. Jesus descends into every hell in which the children of Adam find themselves. And there he sings and causes them to sing. Jesus was singing his song in my daughter Becky watching The Little Mermaid. There's a reason for the darkness and the cave. It's there we learn to sing the song. It's there we meet Jesus. Jesus is the rhythm, the reason, and the meaning of the song. He is the logos. He is the song. Jesus is the word God speaks to create all things and make you in his own image. And when I see it and, and believe it, I don't feel like I have to sing. I want to sing. And that's called faith. Even if it feels like hell, don't stop singing, Ariel.
verse 27. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families, all the peoples of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. So keep singing, Ariel. See, I think that's the calling upon our church. To keep singing, to keep praying, uh, to keep saying, to keep preaching that he has done it. That God has done it in Christ Jesus our Lord. Back in 2011, the Sanctuary Board adopted the following statement. The sanctuary seeks to represent these underrepresented truths. God is one, and so his judgment is love. God is love, and so desires to save. God is almighty, and so can save. God is Jesus, and does save. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians chapter 1. God is better than you thought. The love of Jesus is deeper than you know. And the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. You know, I think every church has a unique purpose. And as near as I can tell, that this is ours. That together as a community, we would represent, we would proclaim, we would announce that God wins. Absolutely. That he has done it. If, if you're new around here, you may not know that six and a half years ago, I was removed from my former denomination for two beliefs that, that are really one belief. First, I would not profess that God will torture a group of people endlessly in a place called hell, that we call hell. And number two, I did profess that when Jesus says, I make all things new, I think he just might mean, I make all things new. And that means that everything that's anything will be made new. Both of those beliefs are really one belief, that God wins, that Jesus wins, that love wins. They mean that that thing that Jesus did on the cross works. It works. He, he works. And we're watching him, and we're watching what he did work in space and time. That good news is what we're called to preach. And it matters. It, it matters for more reasons than I can list here, but I want to mention just a few. Number one, it's biblical. The idea that God tortures people forever without end is profoundly unbiblical on just an absolute multitude of, of levels. And over and over, Scripture testifies that God, God will get his way. And Jesus is his way. Jesus is the end. Jesus makes all things new, including you. Number two, it's honest. 
I know of all sorts of religious folks, some of them pretty famous religious folks that believe what we're saying or consider what we're saying to be a real possibility but won't talk about what we're saying. I think that's because human religious institutions hate what we're saying and will make religious folks pay for saying what we're saying. For number three, it means this. God is salvation. And we are not salvation. You know, the, the phrase God is salvation, you know this. In Hebrew, that's a name. And you know, what's the name? Jesus. Yeah, that's what the name Jesus. That's why blessed be your name, because it means God is salvation. What we're saying means that God gets the glory. Hallelujah means praise God, not praise me or praise the church or praise our program. It means praise God. God gets the glory, and we do not get the glory except by grace. It means God is the Savior and we are not the Savior. And you see, human institutions always want to be the Savior. My prideful, arrogant flesh always wants to be the Savior. The temptation of the evil one is to make ourselves and our own will the Savior. The testimony of Scripture is that, number one, we've all sinned. And all sin merits death. And number two, we're all forgiven. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of, of the world. We're all forgiven, being saved by grace, and so our choice doesn't save us. God's choice saves us and sets us free to choose God and to choose love. God is salvation. God wins. Jesus wins. Love wins. It means, number four, there's no point in beating your neighbor. No point to it. No point in beating your neighbor, only loving your neighbor. God doesn't grade on a curve. It's all pass-fail. And we've all failed and we all pass by loving our neighbor, not beating our neighbor, and we only can do, do that by the grace of God because we love because he first loved us. So number five, this world is not a test to see who's good enough for God. This world is a test to make us all in the image of God who is good. We're tested like gold. So God is not waiting to see who will love. God is using all space and time to teach, to teach all of us to love, to create in us a good free will, faith, hope, and love. So God does not torture because we have not loved. God disciplines so that we would love. He is love. Number six, God's not two, but one. He's not love and, and the opposite of love. He's not love and this other thing that we call justice. God is love and his love is justice. It devours evil and purifies the good like gold is purified by fire, refined by fire, tested by fire. So God does not change. We change. God is not two, but one. So number seven, we can trust God. And that, quite literally, my friends, is everything. The biblical word for trust is faith. Faith is not coming to the conclusion that God exists. Demons have come to the conclusion that God exists. Faith is trusting God's character, trusting God's person, trusting God's heart. So, so if God has children, and God has an enemy, 
It makes sense that that enemy's most powerful lie might be to suggest to God's children that although their father might say, I am love, he is also the opposite of love. Not one, but two. Love and not love. And so he doesn't just discipline in love. He also torments endlessly in hate, or at least allows evil to torment endlessly in hate. So either he abhors many of the children that he has made and predestines them for endless evil, or perhaps he's unable to save many of the children that he's made and therefore surrenders them to endless evil. But either way, God is salvation, can't be trusted. That's Satan's lie. That's the evil one's lie, that God is salvation, can't be trusted. In other words, that Jesus, from the bosom of the Father, can't be trusted. And like I said in the film, that's hell. Not trusting God is hell. Sadly, since about 500 AD, much of the church, the sons of the kingdom, much of the church has taught that for most of humanity, hell wins. So for most of humanity, God cannot really be trusted. Yet in the Gospels, it, it's the sons of the kingdom, not most of humanity, that Jesus goes out of his way to, to warn about doing some time in outer darkness. Hades is not endless. Hades is not endless, and yet Hades is Hades nonetheless. So you see, there's an urgency in what we're saying. And the greatest urgency is for the sons of the kingdom, religious folks that think they aren't going to hell but are content to consign their enemies to hell. The measure you give is the measure you get. So perhaps church folks are the ones most in danger of doing some time in hell. And so I believe that we, the sanctuary, are called to sing the song to the church and to the world. Sing, even though Satan hurts the, hates the song. It hurts him. Sing, even though Satan hurts the song. Sing, even though our prideful, arrogant flesh hates the song. Even though so much of the institutional church hates the song. We need to sing the song because Jesus, God is salvation, is the song. He conquers hell and he sets people free, both in this life and after this life. We need to sing the song. But make no mistake, it's a battle. The principalities and powers of this world do not like the song. At one time in my life, the church I led grew, I figured, I figured this out the other day, it grew by at least 50% a year for seven years. I was like the evangelical golden boy of, of Denver. But, but when I learned the song and when I stopped singing the song, I was literally defrocked and blacklisted, and, and doing church became much more problematic. So, so I need to say, I don't know what God will do with the sanctuary. Sometimes I feel like I've led a bunch of people into the wilderness. I think we're following God like a pillar of fire, but he just keeps wandering around. <laughs> Much of the time, I feel embarrassed. A lot of the times, I feel 
like a failure. And there are always ways that, that I can improve. But, but maybe I feel like a failure because we're singing the song. And this world, and the church in this world, they're afraid of the song, and so they hate the song. So I really don't know exactly what God is, is doing with us, but I think we're singing the song in a world that doesn't sing the song. You know, fairly often I get emails from people in other parts of the country, and in the email they'll say, Peter, do you know of any churches like the sanctuary in my city or my town? And sometimes I'll be able to say, well, I know of, of a good church there, and yet I always have to say, I really don't know of any other church like, like, like the sanctuary. And I hope you understand, it's not because we're on some radical edge. I think it's because we're in the radical middle. You know, some churches, they preach that God is love. Uh, they preach that God is love, but they don't preach that his word is truth. And so people ask rightfully, well, then how do I know that God is love is true? We loosely call those churches liberal churches. There are other churches where uh, they preach that Jesus is the truth, uh, the Bible is true, but, but they really don't preach that God is love. Not God is love all the time. Maybe God is loving, but not God is love. Even though the Bible says God is love and Jesus is the revelation of love. We often call those churches conservative churches. At the sanctuary, I hope we preach both. God is love and God's word is truth. In other words, God is grace. Some churches preach that God is sovereign. So God gets his will. God is free. God is sovereign. His choice is stronger than your choice, stronger than, than our choice. But God doesn't choose to save all. We call those churches Calvinistic churches or Arminian churches. Some churches, on the other hand, they preach, doggone it, no, we're free. We're Americans, we're free. In other words, we're sovereign. Our choice is sovereign. So our choice to be damned is stronger than God's choice to save. So God wants to save all. But I guess he can't save all. We call those churches Arminian. Or maybe American, because we idolize our freedom in America. At the sanctuary, though, we preach, yes, God is free. Absolutely free. And he's making us free. He's drawing all people to himself. John 12, 32, that's what Jesus said. He's romancing all people to himself, romancing us with the unstoppable power of his grace. God is love, and God's love for us is grace. And so um, I hope you see the picture. I hope you get the picture. I, I don't think we're on the radical edge. I think we're in the radical middle. And that radical middle can hurt like a cross. And that's why many won't sing the song. Not yet, anyway. But you are singing the song. That's why the sanctuary is here, because you keep singing the song. About three years ago, Ben Sullivan came to me. He'd been working at the church quite a while, and he said, Peter, I'm going to quit. He said, I'm, I'm going to quit. 
And, and I'm going to quit because I think that once I quit, I'm, I'm going to be able to help us sing the song even better. Sing the song. He didn't use that phrase, but he would have used that phrase if he would have heard this message first. Well, Ben quit working here, and after a time, he started his own film company. And then along with Nate Bullis and some of you, this thing called Downside Up. So far, we've made three short, short films. The, the first, an introductory film called The Cutting Room Floor. It's about Bible verses banned by Bible-believing believers. Number two, we made a film uh, called The Flaming Toilet of Death about fear and love, that fear, fear is the beginning of wisdom and love is the end. And now, hallelujah in hell. And, and you see, really, it was made by us. I hope you recognize some of those homeless people in the video. Did you recognize some of those faces? And I hope you knew some of those names on the screen at, at the credit. You see, we're singing the song. And I hope every weekend we would gather together and sing the song. I think God really has called us to show up and worship from the perspective that love wins. And every day I hope you sing the song to your family, to your friends, to your neighbor. And in fact, it would just be awesome if you'd use these videos to help you sing the song. If you went home today, went to the website, and, and forward this video and the, any other videos to everyone you know, and everyone that you don't know, just everyone, seven billion people, so get on it. You need to get on it. You're singing the song. And others are also singing the song. Did you know that for the first 500 years of the church's existence, much or most of the early church believed that God would ultimately redeem all until the church became part of the Roman Empire? Much of the Eastern Orthodox Church has believed that all along. The Roman Catholic Church has officially stated that since Vatican II in 1965. And things are rumbling among the Protestants. Even if most are afraid to talk about it out loud, that God is one. And so his judgment is love. And God is love and so desires to save. And God is almighty and so can save. And God is Jesus and so does save. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. That's the song. Jesus wins. God wins. Love wins. He has done it. This is the song. that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is the song and it will work. Why? Because it's the Word of God. And the Word of God uh, does not return void, 
but accomplishes the purposes for which it or for which he was sent. For in the beginning, God spoke into the void, saying, let there be light, and there was light. And let the ground sprout vegetation, and it was so. And let the waters teem with life, and it was so. And let us make man in our own image and likeness. And it will be so. For he speaks his word into the void, and he speaks his word into you, and the word accomplishes that for which it was sent. It accomplishes it in you and through you because you are Ariel. You're his body. You're his bride. You're his city. You're his temple. So come forward. Tear off a piece of the bread. Dip it in the cup. Ingest the song. And then sing the song. One day, everything will be full of the song. Let's pray. So, Lord God, we confess that we have believed that we are our own saviors, that we're our own creator, our own savior, our own judge, our own redeemer. But salvation does not belong to us, Father. We confess that we have believed the lie, and now we profess that you are salvation. And that's good. You are good. You're showing us the good. You are good, and we choose the good by your grace given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen? Amen. So this is the song. This is the Word of God in flesh. And it's a song that cannot be stopped. It will accomplish that for which it was sung and is being sung even by the Father now. And you know it. You know it in a world that doesn't know it. A world that's trapped in doubt and fear and confusion. And all of us are trapped a bit by that, but you, but you at least know the song a little bit. You may sing it off key. You may not know quite all the words or how it goes, but you know it. And it will grow and it will not be stopped. So you came forward. You took communion. You ingested this song. Now go out into the world and sing it. Sing it to yourself. Sing it to your neighbor. Sing it to everyone you know that God is good and he wins. You see, we doubted that he was good, but he's showing us, no, I am good. He's good. Believe the, in other words, believe the gospel. Amen. Amen.